Well, I hope that you arrived with a Bible in hand this morning. If you did, I want to invite you to take it and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again. As we continue to look at the life of the church, seeing the struggle that the early church had, struggles that continue on down to this day. I was reading through 1 Corinthians, trying to do a little bit of research there. I was reading a a commentator, a relatively new commentary. He referred to this first letter to the Corinthians as Paul's special delivery letter to the modern church. Might be a little truth to that. It was a letter that was written and sent to a congregation that was riddled with factions. The first century church in Corinth was being torn apart by the formation of personality cults. People were following different leaders. They were setting their eyes upon them. And it seems that the modern church faces some of that uh, issue as well. There are certainly personality issues at play. On a regular basis, I hear people telling others and, and one another, and sometimes telling me about the preachers they usually listen to on the radio, on podcasts, on their computer, on television. That's fine. I think it's great that we hear people preach the Word of God. I get concerned, however, whenever I hear someone say, well, I believe this because I heard so-and-so preach a sermon about this and it made sense to me. Folks, don't take so-and-so's opinion for truth. Check everyone, check everything against the Word of God. This is the authority. Not a man who stands in a pulpit, not a guy who, who dresses one way or another or worships one way or another or in this place or in that place. No, the Word of God is the authority. And if truth is being proclaimed from it, we're good. Modern churches have to deal with this just the same as a first century church. We don't stop there. I mean, it goes on. Churches have endured uh, decades. In fact, most people call it decades. The reality is the church has, in, has endured centuries of worship wars. People debating over what type of music was to be used or what type of instruments were appropriate or what types of lyrics were acceptable. There were times when the church sang nothing but out of the book of Psalms as it's found in Scripture. And then there were songs that were written and there were tunes that were used that actually came from drinking songs in the pubs and bars. And and church folks got a little bit upset about that. And, you know, on and on it's gone. We battle about things that, that sometimes are of great consequence, but more times than not, we, we disagree over things that are of little consequence. And sometimes it almost just seems as if we're looking for a reason to not get along. It's tragic, it's just true, and I'm just making an observation. It was happening in Corinth, and the church was dividing itself up based on different leaders. Paul addressed it, and I want us to see how he addressed it and what we might be able to learn from it this morning, because understand something, we're not all alike, and we're not ever going to be all alike. We are a very diverse bunch of people, but the fact that we are diverse does not mean that we cannot be united. How can that possibly be? How can we be different and yet be united? Let's see what Paul says. If you've got your Bible open to 1 Corinthians, I invite you to find verse 10. And once you've found verse 10, if you can, will, I invite you to stand with me and honor the reading of God's Word. Follow along with me. Paul writes to his brothers and sisters in Corinth. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. Would you pray with me? Father, in this moment, I just want to say thank you for your word. And I pray that as we have read it this morning, that you would bless it. And as we spend these moments together examining, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us the things that we need to see, to hear, to know. And Father, I pray that you would teach us how to be the body of Christ, to be a people whose fellowship and worship and work together would bring glory and honor to your name and to the name of our master, Jesus. Now, Father, I pray for each person in this room today. Whatever need they might have that you brought them into this place and this fellowship to meet it, I pray that it would be met in Jesus' name. Father, may there be life for the lost and dying. May there be hope for the hopeless, healing for the hurting, and encouragement for those who are struggling. Speak to our hearts. Show us your way. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. After 40 years in ministry, I can say to you unequivocally, the church is diverse. Every congregation is different, and within every congregation, there are multitudes of different people. But my friends, based upon the one to whom we all belong, we must find that point of unification that draws us together, binds us together, and makes us one. I've had people say to me, Pastor, that's just not possible. I mean, you guys are living in a pipe dream. How can we be so diverse, differing from one another, and yet still be united? Well, let's consider it from Paul's perspective, shall we? You got your Bible open? I encourage you, keep it open right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're just going to stay within this passage and see what Paul might teach us. The first thing that I think is so obvious when we read these verses is that Corinth was a church familiar with disagreement. We read about it right here in these verses. He tells us about the factions that were popping up, that were taking place. He says, first off, he comes at them and he says, look, you know, some of you are divided. You're saying, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas or Peter. Still another says, I follow Christ. 
they were dividing themselves up along leadership lines. Now, I just want to tell you something. In this case, it was leadership lines. In a lot of churches, it's something else. It may be something totally different and totally unrelated to that. And that's cool. But understand this. Once you begin to fragment and segment the body of Christ, once you begin to divide it up into different groups, whatever the cause, the purpose, or the underlying current might be, it opens the door to all kinds of sin that is going to come in. What I'm saying is we are stronger together than we are when we are broken apart. If you question me about that, all you got to do is go home this afternoon and read this letter. You're going to find that I'm telling you the truth. They divided up along these leadership lines, but, but once, once the division began, Paul uses the word schismata. It's a Greek word that means to be divided, to be broken apart, to be fractured. Something that's intended to be whole is broken in two. Once that happens, it begins a breakdown that can actually lead to the death of a church. Many churches today are caught in a death spiral and don't even realize it. The people who are there are looking and they understand that their church isn't doing well. They understand that the church isn't growing. They understand they're not seeing people's lives change. But they do not understand that they are already in a death spiral. And unless the Spirit of God moves and the God himself does something in that fellowship the end is already written division weakens us so that we become ineffective in our work division destroys our testimony so that we may become ineffectual in our kingdom service the evidence is there But I told you, once we begin to fracture out, there's a breaking of the heart when there's a breaking of fellowship. And when that begins, it opens the door. Read this letter. I mean, this is where it starts in in chapter 1. He's talking about the division along leadership lines. But read the rest of the letter, folks. Because then he starts addressing sexual immorality. He starts talking about incest. He starts talking about fornication. He starts talking about adultery. All of these things were happening within this body. He starts talking about drunkenness. Then he talks about a food fight they have. Now, not the kind of food fight you're picturing when I say that, but a a fight over whether or not it was right, okay, acceptable for them to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols or not. They fought over the freedom that they had and who was free to do what and who wasn't free to do whatever. And and then then they got to the point, they were, listen, once it degenerates, it gets ridiculous. It got to the point that they were fighting with each other over whose spiritual gifts were more important. Folks, can I just tell you something? When a church is engaged in all the things that I just listed, do you think it's really going to be focused on or effective at reaching its community for Christ? No way. No way. Once that type of nonsense begins, it it becomes humanly impossible to put the brakes on. It takes a convicting moment from the Spirit of God. It takes the power of God Himself being interjected into the lives and the hearts of people. And in order for that to occur, they've got to be receptive to it. It's only God that can bring healing and peace to a congregation that's torn like this one. And Paul tried to become that agent. 
that God could use. What I mean is I was reading this letter, that particularly this portion, I became so aware of Paul's pastoral response. Now, I understand something about Paul. Paul could be very pastoral. And Paul could be very blunt and direct as well. Okay? They say, well, how, how, how could he be? Well, sometimes you have to be a little of both. Some moments call for this, and some moments call for this. And sometimes the two get very close. Paul responds in a pastoral manner here. Verses 13 through 17. He's, he's outlined their, their fractures over the different groups. And then he asks, is Christ divided? And he doesn't bring other people into this. <clears throat> I want you to see this. He makes this about himself, not other people. If you want to be pastoral, deal with your own self, not others. Look at what he says. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? No. <laughs> he said, folks, this is not about me. This is not about me. So what's it about? It's about the family. I get tickled when people say, you know, Pastor, I, I just feel at home in your church. You should. Do you know what a church is? It's a family of faith. We, have, we are a people who have been born again through the blood of Christ. When we are born again, the Father adopts us into his family. We become his children. So we are a family of faith. And so if you walk through the doors and you come in here and you belong to Jesus Christ, if nothing else, you ought to be able to say, man, I've come to a family reunion. Uh, you know, certainly as a pastor, I always hope you'll stick. I hope you'll stay. I hope you'll stay with us. But understand, I know that there are people who visit who are traveling. I know that there are people who are visiting who this isn't the place where they're supposed to be. I understand that people come in the door and people go out the door. My thing is this. I hope when they come in the door for the time that they are here, I hope they feel at home. I hope they feel loved. I hope they know that this family is part of their family, even if it's not where they're supposed to park and live their lives out. Paul emphasized that. Did you see how he addressed these folks? Got your Bible? Look back. Look at the beginning of verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers. Brothers. Look down at verse 11. My brothers. You see, he's talking about family. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean everything's perfect. I read this and I'm reminded, I got a brother. I got a brother. Four years older than me, he's a jerk. <laughs> At least that's what I thought when we were growing up. He was bigger. He was stronger. So I had to be smarter and sneakier. <laughs> we were brothers. And we argued, and we fussed, and there were times when, yes, we fought. He usually got the better end of it, unless I snuck up on him. 
My dad handled us. I didn't realize the time, but he handled us masterfully. And we learned something along the way. We were brothers. And we might fight with each other. We might say things to each other. We might do things to each other. And that was okay. We were brothers. But I want to tell you something. If somebody from down the street came up and said to me what my brother had said to me yesterday, they were going to have to deal with my brother. In his mind, it was okay for him to have that conversation with me because we were brothers. But somebody else, that didn't happen. They weren't family. My father taught us all the time we were growing up, you watch out for your family because when the whole world falls apart and everybody turns against you, do you know what you have left? Your family. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we are family. You take care of your family. You guard your family. You protect your family. You watch over your family. Sometimes you squabble with your family. But it's okay. We're family. And when everything else falls apart, do you know what we got left? Family. And here's Paul, and he's calling out to them. He's calling them brothers. I mean, this is a family appeal. And he, he tells them in, in verse 10, he says, Look, I, what I want you to do is agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you. That you might be perfectly united. Paul saw the danger. If we don't see each other as family, if we don't work on the unity of the family, if we don't work on uniting the body, there is a danger that we can come completely undone. We don't want things to deteriorate. We want things to grow and to be healthy. So sometimes we have to take steps to mend the fellowship. Why? Because we want to be united. Now, a lot of people read this passage of Scripture and say, well, you know, this really doesn't seem like it was that big a deal. It wasn't that important. Oh, I disagree. I disagree. If you've got your Bible, look at verse 10. Look toward the end of that verse where Paul says that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. That word united The word united that's used here, that Paul uses in writing this letter, is the same Greek word that is found back in Mark 1.19 when we read about Peter and Andrew mending their nets that had been torn during a night of fishing and work. If that net was not mended, it was useless. The fish would go into the net and swim right out of the net. He he said it's important that this net be united, it be mended, it be patched back together so that it would function and fulfill its purpose and do what it was intended to do. Outside of biblical literature, we find that Greek word used in the medical sense when it talks about setting a broken bone. What happens if a bone is not properly set? And grows back together. It can cripple an arm. It can cripple a leg. It can cripple the body. I had a great aunt, Aunt Elva. She was a sweetheart. When Aunt Elva was about 76 years old, she fell and broke her arm right above the wrist right here. And she went to the hospital, they x-rayed it and said, yes, it's broken. We could all tell that by the grotesque bend in the arm. And they put it back in place and they casted it. 
But they didn't check that arm again for a number of weeks. And by the time they looked, it had shifted inside the cast. And it was growing and the bone was about like that. Okay? It wasn't aligned like it was supposed to be. It was off like that. And so when the cast came off, they cut it off at that point, obviously. And the doctor said, well, look, there's, there's two things we can do. We can either let this thing go like that, and you're always going to have this hump in your arm, and your hand may be partially effective and partially not. Or we can bring you in tomorrow, and we can re-break the bone and reset it. I loved Aunt Elva. And I wanted Aunt Elva to look like Aunt Elva. But she looked at the doctor and said, I'm 76 years old. You're not breaking my arm. It's already broke. I remember walking past her, her casket years later after I had preached her funeral sermon. And reaching in. And running my hand down her arm and feeling that knot that had been there ever since it was not properly cared for. Folks, we've already got enough knots in the church without properly setting and uniting the parts of the body. So when Paul talks about this, I, I think it's important. As a pastor, he calls them brothers. He says, look, we're family. We've got to mend the nets. We've got to properly set the brakes so that they heal right. We don't want anything that's going to hinder the body from fully functioning to the best of its ability. And I want you to see what I said a moment ago. Because I believe this is so true. Paul made it a point. To remove himself from the debate. Do you know how easy it would be to let your head swell up and go on a massive ego trip because people said, I follow Paul. I think Paul's the greatest preacher around. Paul baptized me, therefore I'm a little more saved than the rest of you. It's, that's the kind of nonsense that was going on. And Paul says, huh, no, no. You don't follow me. You follow Christ. I follow Christ. I didn't baptize you. You weren't baptized into the name of Paul. He removes himself from this trap, if you want to call it that, this ego trap. He, he pulls himself back out and said, look, if y'all want to argue about Apollos and, and Peter and you want to argue about Jesus, that's great. Knock yourselves out. But I'm out of this because I'm not on par with Jesus. So I, I'm just removing myself from this thing. I mean, he goes so far as to look at them and say, look, I am so thankful that I didn't baptize any of you people. Only Crispus and Gaius, verse 14. You see, what Paul did was he exercised, whew, it's hard, he exercised some humility. You got to work at that. But his humility lifted him above the fray. And because of that, he was able to call upon them to do the right thing. It wasn't self-serving. It wasn't self-motivated. It was about honoring Christ. And that gave him some authority because of the humility that he exercised. And he reminded them, I didn't come here to divide the church. I didn't come here. 
for you to follow me over somebody else. I didn't come here to be a part of this division thing. I came here for one reason. And that's the reason that God sent me. Do you know what that reason is? He says in 17, it's for this reason. I came to preach the gospel. That's it. Folks, that's what a leader's supposed to do in a church. Preach the gospel. Put the word of God out there. And then finally, after Paul has done this, he's, he's given this marvelous pastoral response. He gave them a strong reminder. And I want you to see this strong reminder and understand where I'm going with this. Don't miss this, all right? His reminder was simple. You may have to help me back there. We're stuck, Mike. Never, never look away from our point of unity. Look at verse 18. I mean, this this is such an amazing verse. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now, you got to look at this verse and you got to see it in the parts, okay? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Those who are not part of the body. Those who are outside the church. Those who are lost. Those who do not know Christ, those who are not willing to surrender their heart, their life, their will to the voice of God when he calls upon them to to bow before him and acknowledge him as Savior and Lord. Those who are outside, those who are lost are perishing. Why? Because to them, they look at the message of the cross and they say, how can this be? How could anyone love that deeply? How can one man dying save the world? How can one man's death make such a difference in the lives of everyone else? That's foolish. We still got a lot of people saying the same thing today. He says, but then there's the other part of this. To those of us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. You see, we look there, the world looks there, and they see a man dying and think, how foolish is that? We look at the cross, we see a man dying and say, how great a love is this? That in the midst of my sin and my unrighteousness, God would look at me and say, I can deliver you through my son. Folks, that's the power of God. Paul wanted them to see, here it is. The message of the cross. What's the message of the cross? It's the revelation of God's love. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What is the message of the cross? It's that the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, the spotless one, The one who knew no sin became sin for us. And he went to the cross. And when he was nailed to that cross and he laid down his life, he paid the price for our sin, for my sin, for your sin, for all of our sin. He provided the purchase price, the redemption, so that we could be bought back from death and bondage and sin and given to the Father as his personal possession. The message of the cross is Christ crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, risen. 
and ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of glory, where today he makes intercession on our behalf. That's the message of the cross. Those who hear that message but will not soften their hearts, will not surrender their will, will not give way to the calling voice of the Father, are perishing. I have people ask me all the time, how do you explain the difference? How? I don't know, folks. I'm just a preacher of the gospel. I don't understand all the things of God. In fact, Deuteronomy 29, 29 assures me that I will not understand all the things of God. There are things that he has revealed to us and there are things that he will hold from us. They will never be ours to understand. I don't know why it is that there are those in whom the Spirit is not stirring. I do not know why it is that there are those who hear the message but their hearts are not softened. I do not know why it is that some hear about their sin and the offer of salvation and they are not convicted of their sin. I do not know. Why it is that there are people who seemingly the Savior is not drawing them or they are not coming to Him. I don't know. I can't explain it. All I know is this. God knew it was going to be like that. Jesus knew it was going to be like that. He said there are two paths. There's a narrow road and there's a broad way. One leads to life, one to destruction. Of that narrow road that leads to life, he said, few there be that find it. The broad way? Oh, multitudes. <laughs> Many people are traveling that road. I don't understand it. I'm not called to understand that. I'm called to proclaim the truth and I am called to challenge you with myself to look to the cross. Folks, that is our point of unity. That's our point of unity. That's what draws the church together. That's what makes us one. That's what makes us the family of God. That's what makes us a family of faith. It's when we get focused. Our common focus must be on the completed, redemptive work of Jesus. It's our source of strength. It can heal our broken or stressed relationships. And we have to remind ourselves sometimes, salvation is not found in the name of any great leader or great preacher or disciple maker. Salvation is not found in the name of a certain church or a denomination or a group. Salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. That, that is our point of unity. We're never going to agree on everything. Unfortunately, we can laugh about it. Sometimes we have to to keep from crying. Christian people part ways. Churches split over the color of carpet, the color of paint. Chairs or pews. Not saying any of those things aren't important to somebody. But I'm saying this, the most important thing is making Jesus Christ known to the world. Still a very real problem in the church. 
comes from a multitude of different issues. And it doesn't matter what they are. We have to stay focused on the cross and the Christ who died there. Whatever the source of conflict or disunity or interrupted harmony might be, the answer is always the same. The cross. Get to the cross. Go to the cross. Look at the cross. Look at the one who's there. And I want to ask you this morning, brothers, sisters, have you been to the cross lately? Are you focused on the one thing? The one thing above everything else is Jesus Christ. If we trust Him, we follow Him, we serve Him, we may not agree on every little thing, but we will be united in Christ. Do you know Him? You can. Let's bow our heads together. Just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing a song of invitation. I, I just want to give you the opportunity to respond to the voice of God. Perhaps something in the Word has spoken to you. Perhaps the Spirit of God has spoken to you. Maybe something that's been said has spoken to you. In this moment, I want to give you the opportunity to respond. Maybe you just need to talk to God right where you're at. Maybe, maybe you want someone to pray with you. I'd be happy to do that. Maybe you feel the need to come to this altar and meet God there. I don't know what it is that God may be calling you to, but I do know this. If he's speaking, I challenge you. Hear his voice and be obedient. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. Above everything else, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. I thank you for the cross, for the revelation of your love for us. I thank you for building your church and making us a family of faith, a body belonging to you to be used for your service and your purpose. Now, Father, I pray in these moments, you've spoken to our hearts, draw Draw us now. If there's one here who does not know you, I pray, draw them to yourself that this might be the day when they experience what life abundant and eternal truly is. Draw us to you with our brokenness, with our sin, with our hurt. Draw us to you that we might experience the wholeness you have for us. Father, have your way in our lives. We'll give you the praise and the glory for that which you do. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.